Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us today. Father, we're grateful for your many, many displays of mercy and kindness. Thank you for mercies that are new this morning. Thank you for your compassions that fail not. Thank you for your great faithfulness. And thank you for the way you have orchestrated this remarkable history of redemption. And as we come to um, what in many respects is the, is the pinnacle, the peak, the climax of that whole history in the coming and the living and the dying and rising of Jesus, will you teach us? And even though these things are familiar to us, will you give us a fresh appreciation, a fresh wonder, a fresh amazement at who he is and what he has done? to accomplish the great work of redemption. So help us in these moments together. And may all the glory be yours, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the title... <clears throat> Come on in, everybody. Welcome back, Mrs. Golly. How's that grandson? Beautiful. Not as beautiful as mine, but I'm glad he's beautiful. Um, the title of the book that's been our guide these past several weeks is Christ from Beginning to End. And the point of that title is to say that the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is about Jesus and the redemption he came to accomplish. I did not grow up with that view of the Bible. The Bible is a whole, it's a whole bunch of stories, and they were pretty cool stories, but none of the stories that I learned from the Old Testament were about Jesus. They were about David and Goliath. They were about Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. They were about all those famous, they were about the flood, they were about Noah and the ark, they were about Daniel and the lion's den. They were all about those stories, and those were cool stories, and they were captivating and interesting, but nobody ever told me that those stories were about Jesus. And they are. Every last one of them, in one way or another, is about Jesus. And the whole Bible is this one magnificent history of redemption. So <clears throat> it's one story from start to finish. It has many chapters, many events, but it's one story. And the story begins, in Gen for us, begins in Genesis 1.1. And from there to the end of Malachi, the Old Testament, what we have there is what we might call the dawn of redemption. It's the beginnings of redemptive history. And then what comes from Matthew 1.1 on is simply the rest of the story. It's not a new story. It's not something different. We didn't shift gears. It's just the rest of the story. It's where the Old Testament was taking us all along. And we finally got there. When we get to Matthew 1, 1. If you come to Matthew 1, 1 cold, and by that I mean without any, without any sense of Old Testament history and background, it's like starting to read a book that has 66 chapters and you've started with chapter 40. How much sense would that make? It would take you a lot. I mean, I mean you'd, get, you'd get the sense of that part of the story, but, but, but you don't have all the introduction. You don't have introduction of characters. You've missed some of the most critical developments of the plot. The story is well underway by the time we get to Matthew 1.1. And today that's where we pick up the story. And really grateful for uh, the guys who have labored through the first part of this book to 
get us ready for this chapter uh, called A Cup Full of Blood. It's an interesting title, isn't it? A Cup Full of Blood. Um, does that remind you of anything? Communion? Be a little more specific. What, Dwayne? What'd you say? Covenant? Okay. There are words to this effect. Paul recounts the words of the Lord Jesus in First Corinthians, um, in First Corinthians eleven, and he says, "This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me." I think that's where he gets the title of this chapter: "A cup full of blood." This cup is the new covenant. The mention of new covenant brings to mind that there was an old covenant. There were, in fact, several covenants prior to the new covenant. Old covenant is kind of a broad general term we use for um, the things that came down through Moses and governed most of life under the Old Testament. But that old covenant came to various expressions through the history of the Old Testament. So, let me just remind you of where uh, the New Covenant fits in all of that overall history of redemption. Some of, some of you may remember um, this chart. I'll finish putting it up here in a second. From years ago, I taught an Old Testament uh, survey class. And I used this chart to sort of see the whole flow of redemptive history. So um, the ti- this is kind of a timeline, sort of a biblical timeline from Genesis to Revelation, and right smack in the middle of that thing is the cross. And there's a reason that comes right smack in the middle, even though there's more books in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. The, the, the focal point of redemptive history is the cross. So the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, and I'm sorry if some of that is small to read. Can you guys in the back read that? Bobby, can you read that? Okay. You might have to really work at that. But Genesis to Malachi is the period of preparation. We're getting ready for what's about to come. Um, The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the execution. Not kind of execution, but the execute the plan, okay? The carrying out of the plan. Um, That's recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Acts and the Epistles are the amplification. They, They... spell it out for us. They work out the implications of what Jesus did in his life and ministry and death and resurrection, which are recorded for us in the Gospels. So the action epistles are the so what. They amplify all of that and they tell us how it all works out. And then uh, revelation is completion in eternity. And if you're really with it here, you'll see there's another word on the screen up there. And it's the first letter of each of those preparation, execution, amplification, completion, attorney. What does that spell? Peace. What did Jesus come to accomplish? Peace between God and men. Okay? Now, as that history began to unfold, um, God had an arrangement with Adam in the Garden of Eden. And I'm not going to debate the legitimacy or not of this expression, covenant of works. There are lots of theologians that 
think that's a legitimate idea. There are other theologians that think, no, nah, there's no such thing as cumulative works. Some guys call it other things. They call it the Adamic administration. It's the arrangement God had with Adam in the garden. And you, you don't eat from the fruit of this tree, for in the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. And he did. So he broke the stipulations of the covenant, and it was something Adam had to do, hence the term a covenant of works. But the moment Adam fell and violated that covenant, another covenant kicked in, which was God's plan from all eternity. And we have a hint of that covenant in Genesis 3.15. And there are a large number of theologians who call that arrangement that began with the promise in Genesis 3.15 that um, put enmity between the seed of the woman and between your seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That was a promise of a redeemer to come. Um, and a covenant is a sworn promise. And there are various forms of covenants and so forth, but there was a promise to redeem. So, and it was a gracious promise. So we have a covenant of grace spanning the entire history of redemption from the fall to eternity. And that covenant of grace has been worked out in in a number of other covenants that are all applications and manifestations of the covenant of grace. They're all gracious arrangements that, that God made. So the first covenant mentioned in Scripture after the fall is the covenant with Noah. And the promise in that covenant was that the race was going to be preserved. He saved the people to redeem. Okay, we're talking about the history of redemption. And if he wipes everybody out with a universal flood, what happens to the promise of redemption? There's nobody left to redeem. So in the covenant with Noah, he promises to preserve the race so that there can be redemption. Then there's the covenant with Abraham, which is a redeemer promised. Remember, the seed of, through the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, and we know how that came to fulfillment in the coming of Christ. And then there's the covenant with Moses, which had to do with rules prescribed, the law, focusing on the Ten Commandments, so that we would understand how desperately we need to be redeemed. Isn't that the point of the law? To show us how, how we have missed the mark altogether? and how, how, how desperately we need a Redeemer who kept the law. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. And then there was the covenant with David, royalty perpetuated. David's son is going to sit on his throne for how long? Forever. Royalty perpetuated. On and on and on and on. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins, and he'll sit on the throne of his father David forever. Royalty perpetuated. The covenant with David. And then that leads us to the new covenant. And of course, the whole focal point of the new covenant is Christ himself and his person and his work, his life, his death, his resurrection for sinners like us. And every member of the new covenant will have that law written on their hearts. And you read about that in Jeremiah 31. So you'll notice in the diagram here that everything leads up to and flows out from the cross. And the cross stands that complex of events, the, the 
coming birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection of Jesus. That's the focal point. And uh, the Bible itself tells us that history was moving toward that time from the very beginning. And until that time, things were not ready. There was a time foreordained for Jesus to come, and all of history was moving. So it's, it's altogether right and proper to make the cross the focal point of history. You remember these statements. For while we were still helpless, what's the next statement, class? At the, oh, thank you. You did very well. It takes a few times for most people to get that. You guys are sharp as tacks. You got it. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Uh, but when the fullness, of time. the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. But when did that happen? The fullness of time. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The, 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 the cup's full. It's time. Okay? Uh, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. One more. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of our God, of God our Savior. There's an awful lot about the right time, the fullness of time. The time is fulfilled. The time is at hand. It's the proper time. These texts are telling us that history has been moving toward a goal. It's been moving from the beginning toward a climax, toward a point when the time was going to be full, when the time was right, when history had been filled with everything needful, Jesus came at that time, not before the world was ready, not a moment too late, but rather at the right appointed time, Christ died for the ungodly. We're not going to do it this morning. It's a fascinating history. It's a fascinating study to go back and look at the actual historical events that took place from the close of the Old Testament canon to the coming of Jesus. What do we call that time? The, the, the 400 silent years. It was 400 years from the close of the Old Testament canon to the time Jesus came. And God didn't say a word. No prophets. No announcements from heaven. No angels shouting from the realms of glory. But silence does not mean nothing is happening. In fact, when your kids are quiet for too long, you are persuaded that something is happening. Right? So God was silent, but He wasn't inactive. And if you study the development of history from the close of the Old Testament canon to the time Jesus came, it's an absolutely fascinating study about how God was getting everything ready for the fullness of time, for Jesus to come. We'll do that another time. So, um, we come to a time that has been prepared. We enter onto a stage that has been providentially set for the scene that's about to unfold. And at the center of that stage is Jesus. Center stage. So, our author arranges this chapter 
around these three questions. Who was Jesus the Christ? Well, duh, who doesn't know that? We're going to talk about it. Um, What kind of salvation did he bring? And how did he secure that salvation? So let's start with his first question. And I'm going to... I'm going to uh, I'm going to open these up and develop them a little bit differently in some places than our author did. That's okay. But I hope you read that chapter and found it to be helpful. Who is Jesus the Christ? Well, let me start by saying that he was not who they expected him to be. He's not who the religious leaders and the general population expected him to be. They didn't expect, they did not expect a baby born in a stable. Totally off the radar for most of them. They did not expect a challenger to the current religious establishment. They did not expect somebody to come nailing the hides of the scribes and Pharisees to the wall. They didn't expect that. They didn't expect a suffering, bleeding, dying Savior to rescue all sorts of people from sin. What they expected was a political liberator from the oppression of Rome. They expected him to get rid of the soldiers. Expected him to get rid of the tax collectors and the Herods and the underlings of Rome. Expected him to set up his literal throne and vanquish all their enemies. From Rome, enemy number one, to the despised Tax collectors and sinners to the hated half-breed Samaritans. Clean up the streets, Jesus. That's what they expected. So when Jesus came on the public scene and took pity on the centurion's servant, it was unthinkable. The centurion was a Roman They hated Rome. Kick them out, Jesus. It's not what he came to do. So when he came and took pity on the centurion's servant and called a tax collector to be one of his disciples, are you kidding? A tax collector? And when he conversed with the Samaritan woman at the well, and when he touched lepers, and pronounced forgiveness of sins, and taught the people as one having authority and not as the scribes, they would have none of it. Put yourself in their shoes. What would you have thought if this one who's claiming to be the Son of God, if this one who's claiming to be the Messiah, the the anointed deliverer from God, and he's doing all these horrible, awful, terrible, no good, very bad things, Helping Roman soldiers, talking to Samaritans, touching lepers, enlisting a tax collector to be one of his disciples. He was not whom they expected. So who was he? So who was he? He was exact fulfillment, no surprise, because we've been studying this book 
All along, he was the exact fulfillment of all the Old Testament types and shadows of what the Messiah, God's anointed deliverer, would be. Remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection. And Larry, if I repeat anything you may have said last Sunday, forgive me because I didn't get to hear your lesson. Okay? Um, remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection. How did Jesus help them understand more clearly what had just taken place? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. What scriptures did they have? The Old Testament. Gospels weren't even written yet. They had the Old Testament. He took the Old Testament and he opened up to them everything in the Old Testament about him. It was about Jesus. He opened up the Old Testament to them. And, and I, do, a, do a quick, 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 quick survey of what he might have said to them. We don't know exactly what he said, except he opened up the scriptures to them. So we get glimpses of Jesus all through the Old Testament. Don't we get a glimpse of him in Genesis 3.15? And we referred to it a couple minutes ago. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That's Jesus is going to come and he's going to defeat the devil. And he did. We get a glimpse of him in the ark. I don't know what it looked like, okay? But you get the point. You had to be where to be saved from the flood. In the ark. You had to be in the ark. Where do you have to be saved to be rescued from the wrath to come? In Christ Jesus. You got to be in Christ. You got to be in the ark. And, and, and judgment is coming and you've only got so much time to flee to the ark. Who is Jesus? And we got a glimpse of Him <clears throat> in the tabernacle. That was the dwelling place of God and in Jesus, all in, in Jesus. Can you imagine when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year with that blood? And he was there in the very presence of God. And what does the Bible tell us about Jesus? In Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. The tabernacle is the dwelling place of God. Jesus is the tabernacle. We get a glimpse of him there. We get a glimpse of him in the whole sacrificial system. Every lamb, bull, goat that was slain was a picture of Jesus. And what the blood of all those millions of animals could not do, actually take away sins, Jesus' blood actually did. We get a glimpse of him in those sacrifices. In the Old Testament, we see him portrayed by prophets, priests, and kings. Prophets were spokesmen for God. They declared, thus saith the Lord. God did not leave his people without a word from him. But as authoritative as their declarations were, they were still flawed men. Moses did not make it into the promised land. Why? Because of his unbelief. Samuel had ungodly sons. Isaiah eventually died. Jonah disobeyed. 
every single prophet leave us wanting a better prophet. All the judges, all the judges in the Old Testament, as, as remarkable as those guys were, and as much as they accomplished, they leave us wanting a better judge because they all had flaws and failings. We need a better one. Priests interceded with God for men. They offered up sacrifice continually to cover the sins of the people, but they weren't perfect either. They had to offer sacrifices for their own sins before they could offer for the sins of the people. We need a better priest. And the kings, that's supposed to be David, I think. But the kings ruled over the nation of Israel. Many of them, most of them ruled badly. And those who ruled well still knew all too much about moral failure. They leave us wanting a better king. Enter Jesus. And he's better on every front. He, the first three verses of Hebrews 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. Here's the best prophet. God spoke to the fathers and the prophets in many parts, many ways. Now here's Jesus, the best prophet. Whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He's the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he's our priest. He's the best priest. He's the offering. He's the offerer. And he's the best priest. When he had made purification from sins, he sat down on the, at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's our king. And he rules over the universe forever. So we see these, we see these pictures in the Old Testament. Prophets, priests, and kings. And Jesus is the best of all. Where every Old Testament type and shadow fell short and failed, Jesus succeeded. He fulfilled them all and showed himself to be exactly the Redeemer we needed. So, who was Jesus the Christ? Not whom they expected, but just exactly who we needed to be our Redeemer. Okay, let's keep going. What kind of salvation did he bring? Again, not what they expected. It was not political, freedom from Rome. It was not national for Jews only. It was not merely physical for the body only. It was not about freedom from Rome, but about freedom from the bondage of sin. What, what kind of salvation did he bring? He brought freedom from the bondage of sin. Our old self was crucified with him that our body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Rome had nothing to do with it. My bondage to sin had everything to do with it. And that's the kind of salvation he brought, was to free us from the bondage of sin. It was not about a temporary covering for our sin until we offer the next sacrifice, but about a real, permanent, forever forgiveness. This is from the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31. For they, shall not, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember. No. 
does it really mean that? You mean, you mean the knuckle-headed stunt I pulled the other day, Jesus has already forgotten? Yes. Yes. That's incredible. Okay, not really, because incredible means cannot be believed. From the Latin credo, I believe. Incredible, not believable. Okay, we use that word wrongly all the time. So let's get it right. It's absolutely remarkable. <laughs> but remarkable doesn't seem to... It's, we need more than remarkable. Astounding. Stupendous. Almost unbelievable. Almost. Can you, is there a prefix in Latin that means almost? Okay, so put that in front of incredible. You can't do that? You get the point, right? It's almost incredible. When Jesus healed the paralytic, whose friends let him down through the roof, the most obvious need everybody saw plainly was his, he needed to be able to get him walk. He was paralyzed. Everybody could see that, but his most pressing need was forgiveness. And Jesus saw that, so the very first words out of Jesus' mouth were, Son, your sins are forgiven. That's the kind of salvation he came to bring. It was not about a rescue just for privileged Jews. Simeon had it right. When Joseph and Mary brought the little baby Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem, he took him in his arms and he said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The salvation he brought was, understand I'm using this word, was universal. It wasn't just for the Jews. It was for the Samaritans. It was for us. Is anybody here a, a blood Jew? Then man, if this salvation wasn't broader than the Jewish nation, we are sunk. We, us, right here, we are sunk. But it was. It was, for, it was a light for the Gentiles. Hallelujah. And then there was that remarkable conversation Jesus had with a Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. What Jesus came to offer the water of life was for all sorts of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Even despised renegades. The salvation Jesus came to bring was not just about this life. It was about eternal life. John 3.16 it was about the redemption of our bodies, yes, and not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The salvation He came to bring was the whole deal. It wasn't, it wasn't just for some kind of spiritual esoteric sort of thing out here. It was, it was yes, it brought eternal life, and it, it secured someday the redemption of our bodies. And it was for all sorts of people. It was just remarkable. 
I mean, sit down and think about it, okay? We hear about this all the time, okay, right? We hear about it every Lord's Day. And the stuff you hear about all the time, you can just get used to it. But try to get unused to it for a minute. It's incredible. Almost. What He came to do. How did He secure that salvation? How did He secure that salvation? Well, there, there are different ways to answer this question. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a little different approach than our author did. And what he said was perfectly fine. Um, but I want to answer this in two ways. He did what we could not do. And he did what we could never have imagined. How did he secure this salvation? He did what we could not do. And he did what we could never have imagined. You know where I'm going with this, Mr. Golly, because you've heard me say it a million times to the kids at school. He did, <clears throat> he did what we could not do. We could not establish our own righteousness. We could not keep the law. Absolutely, we could not. Romans 3, there is none righteous, not even one. 1 John 3, 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. We couldn't keep the law. We were lawless. That's a problem. What's the problem? God meant His law. It has to be kept. We can't just, we can't just waltz through life sweeping our transgressions of God's law under the carpet and think it's not going to matter. It has to be kept. One way or another, it's got to be kept. It's not just some arbitrary list of rules that don't really mean anything in the end. God's law cannot be ignored without horrendous consequences. And where it is ignored, Jesus will someday say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So it's got to be kept. So Jesus kept it for us. Jesus kept it for us. For as through one man's disobedience, who was that? Adam. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made, constituted sinners, so by the one man's, Jesus, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made, constituted, declared righteous. The reference here to obedience, through the one man's obedience, through the obedience of the one, is not simply his going to the cross. His obedience to the point of death was the culmination of a life of obedience as he worked out a perfect righteousness for us. And this is how I tell it to the school kids all the time. And I, I hope I've said it so many times that they'll never forget it. Why did Jesus, what am I going to say, Mr. Golly? Why did Jesus never roll his eyes at his mother 
He never did. Never once did Jesus, Jesus, would you please take out the garbage? Oh. He never did that. Why? Mr. Jolly? Because he knew I would. Because he knew I would. And somebody had to do it right for me because I couldn't get it right ever. Why did Jesus, as a, young, uh, as a young man, never succumb to the temptation to lie to his parents about where he was going? Because he knew we would, and somebody had to do it right. And then he takes that righteousness, and he makes it ours. What did we do to deserve that? Zero. Nothing. You talk about grace and mercy. He gives us that righteousness so that it is really ours. Through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Not because I kept it, but because he kept it and gave it to me. That's called imputation. His righteousness is put to our account. So God looks up the ledger book and he comes to the page that has Tim Hoke's name at the top of the page and he looks down that ledger and it's crystal clean because Jesus' name is written all over it. He put it to my account. And then he did what we could not have imagined. He did what we could not do and then he did what we absolutely could never have imagined in a million years. He took our sin upon Himself so that He became the target of God's wrath instead of us. He took my sin and He made it His. That's so wrong because He never did it. He never did all the garbage I've done. Not once. He was, he was spotless. Then how is it that the wrath of God fell upon him? Because he took my sins and made them his. And the wrath of God fell on him. And it's not going to fall on me. But he was pierced through <coughs> For our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. And he himself bore our sins in his body. He bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by His wounds you were healed. I'm going, to give you a, I'm going to give you a long quote, and this is the last thing I'm going to give you. It's from an old writer named Hugh Martin in his book, The Atonement. Um, this is back in the 1800s. And here it is. I'll... I'll I have a tendency to talk fast. I'll slow down. 
because you've got to get this. Okay? Divine justice and divine wrath, then, are seen searching for sin. Our sin. To execute upon it the vengeance due to sin. And in this search, divine justice and divine wrath inevitably find Christ. What are they searching for? Sin. To execute divine justice and divine wrath on sin. And as they're searching for a place to pour out that divine wrath and justice, their search lands on Jesus. They inevitably find Christ. For God hath made him that knew no sin to be sin for us in like manner. And in the exact counterpart of this, divine justice and divine love are seen searching for righteousness, the righteousness of God, the righteousness which God requires, which His own holy nature cannot but require. They are searching for it in order to smile upon it, to lavish on it the love and favor and blessing of God. And in searching for this righteousness, they find us. What? Are you kidding? As divine justice and wrath search the world over for righteousness, to pour out upon it the love and favor and blessing of God, that search lands on us. If we are in Christ, for we are made the righteousness of God in Him, and they own that their search has been successful. How did He secure that salvation for us? He took our sins on Himself. And he gave us his righteousness. There's no other explanation, is there? We couldn't do it. But he did. And he sealed all of that with his resurrection from from the grave. The devil and the powers of darkness did not win. And their ultimate destruction only awaits the return of Christ. And he will return in power and glory to reign forever. Who was Jesus? Not who they expected, but exactly who we needed. What was, what, what was the salvation he accomplished? Salvation from sin. Rescue from the wrath of God. How did he secure that? By taking, by, by, by giving us a perfect righteousness and by taking our sins upon himself. How blessed are we? How good is God? Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you have done. Thank you that the fullness of time came And thank you that Jesus entered this world and did all that we could not do and took all that we could not bear and secured rescue for us. What a marvelous history. What a grand history of redemption. 
May we never cease to be amazed. Help us now as we go to worship. May we go with hearts that are full. In Jesus' name, amen.